Hello and welcome to part four of our six-part series on dispelling all those myths about low-code. You can listen to all of our previous episodes on the show's page, wherever you get your podcasts. Hold on. Who's there? It's Michael. Michael who? Come on, Ginny. Oh, that's right. You were coming over with myth number four. Mmm, looks great. That looks like lunch. It's also a clue to our scenario today. I'll go get the cutlery. Ginny, you've heard of Butterball, right? No, I'm not sure what that is. It's a US company. They sell turkeys. Anyway, they have this hotline where people can call in on Thanksgiving. You have a hotline that people ring in just so they can ask questions about cooking turkeys? Now that I hear you saying it out loud, it does sound a bit weird. But they're mentioned in this episode, so I thought I'd get to jump on it. Okay, I'll bite. So how many different ways can you cook a turkey? Quite a few, as it turns out. And there have been more than a few strange call-ins over the years. Someone curated a list of the weirdest. Want to hear one? Please. This might be my favorite. One caller said that they were expecting a guest from Connecticut. I don't know why that detail is important. This guest was coming over early just to baste the caller's turkey. That sounds a bit forward. And the question to Butterball was, Butterball's birds are pre-basted. So what should the caller do with the guest? (laughs) And how did Butterball respond? Doesn't say. But it's deeply connected to our myth. Yep. And our myth maker today is Sarah. I'm Sarah, and I manage the IT department at Flavify. Flavify is a food and beverage plant. They specialize in fancy, ready-made dinners. I can see that. So it's like the kind you serve to guests and pretend you made them yourself? I guess. Not that I've ever done that. We face all the common industry problems, from staying on top of rapidly changing customer taste demands to evolving points of sale. The most concerning issue is that private labels, products made by another company for sale under our brand, have begun to push more on their market share. We've struggled to adapt. Just a second, sorry. Hello, Flavify. Hey, Sarah. How might Locode help you? I'm taking a leaf out of Butterball's book. I have looked into Locode, but it looks like it's too expensive in terms of both labor and cost. I'm definitely excited by all the cool things it looks like it can handle. But I can't get too excited because I feel that management won't buy into it. Sounds like a job for... That's your cue, Michael. Oh, oh, sorry. I thought you were still speaking to Sarah. This time, our low-code hero is Charles Arujo, Principal Analyst at IntelliX. Charles, how do we address Sarah's belief that low-code isn't worth the financial risk? So I think it's an interesting question, mostly because it sort of exposes how we've traditionally looked at the entire idea of automation or development in traditional enterprises. There's this limited budget, and we have to be very careful with how we invest it, which of course makes sense. But what often goes unstated in any large enterprise, particularly one that has been around for a while and has these long established processes, is the hidden cost of doing things the way you've always done them, the the baked-in inefficiencies. And so when I wrote my first book almost a decade ago now. That's the quantum age of IT, why everything you know about IT is about to change. 
It's about the evolution of IT and tech in enterprise organizations. In those early days, we were so constrained. I mean, wildly constrained compared to what we are dealing with today. But those constraints actually dictated the culture that got built around how we view technology and automation. I asked Charles how he gets around the problem when it has been so embedded in the system. It's always a risky endeavor, which historically has been true. But when we think about modern and evolving technologies like low code, it rapidly becomes untrue. And so it's sort of this unlearning from a cultural dynamic standpoint that we have to start with. Yeah, that's very interesting because industries like food and beverage, they're being hit with that change, right? The, the constant flipping of consumer taste, private labels are pushing in on your customers. So it's there's a lot of established know-how that's being challenged right now. And I think there's there's a whole bunch of challenges implicit in that customer experience is what is driving value in this era. Almost nothing about the way our organizations are structured, managed, and led are done in a way to support that. The secondary aspect of it is that those expectations, those experiential demands are fickle. I'm as guilty about it as anybody. It's like, today I want this and tomorrow I want something else because there's a new ad by Apple and, and that made me go, well, why? How come, how come these guys can't do that too, right? It's just like this constant evolving expectation. Because I'd argue in most organizations, they don't have nearly enough insight into their customers. And as these experiential demands are driving change, they need it. They need that insight. Hang on. Can we just backtrack for a minute? Experiential demands. Can you give us an example? It means creating branded experiences for your customers. As Charles said, in the food and bev industry, approaches to addressing experiential demands are a bit clunky. They're built on marketing ideas we had years ago when we didn't have that sort of data we have now to pull from. They were built in the era of mass production. It was building a mass product for a mass market, and we created these huge, giant customer segments. That does not make me feel special. And that's a killer for a company like Flavify because they need their customers to feel like they're making food just for them. Well, our stomachs are the way to our hearts. If you win over a customer in that way, you make sales that much easier. I love the idea of being an individual. And yet, in, as far as the traditional CPG world, I'm in a market of, you know, 45 million people that apparently are just like me, except we know that isn't true. How am I interacting with your brand in some way that you can harvest that interaction and start to understand who I am? The biggest opportunity around something like low code is you now have the opportunity to start creating what that needs to look like. So for Sarah, the question is not, how do I have parity with all my competitors in my food and beverage space, whichever one it is? The question is, how do I create a unique experience for my customers that only I can deliver? The challenge that food and beverage has compared to, say, a mechanic, is that they are, by definition, they are several layers away from that customer. So for them, they need to create ways of bridging that divide. And so Butterball is a classic example, right? Their Butterball Turkey Hotline is this great customer service thing around every Thanksgiving. You call and ask them any question you have. This really is iconic in the U.S. It's big. I mean, even a famous scene in the, in the TV show West Wing, where the president calls the Butterball hotline, asking about to resolve this big debate. But again, people don't always realize is that was a massive treasure trove of customer data that they could then use to start recognizing they had different types of customers. They had some that was all about this gourmet experience and taking it and making the fanciest turkey. And then others that was about, how do I do this 
in 45 minutes because I didn't plan well, right? And recognizing that they had different types of customers and could start tailoring how they delivered their product despite being several layers removed to their different types of customers. The minute Sarah has to say, I can't do that, is the minute that she is torpedoing the organization's ability to compete. And it's not just data capture that makes companies successful today. The speed at which organizations your competitors can develop is rapidly increasing. Organizations have been historically in this place that they have to really start reinventing everything. One of the reasons I love low code is that it becomes a automation platform that enables that. The financial risk is greater if you don't change or if you take traditional approaches to solving these problems. I'm still stuck on the bit about Sarah's problem with outmoded IT infrastructures. That seems like a huge uphill struggle. It's a lot of pressure, and Charles sympathized. I'm an old, dyed-in-the-wool IT guy. I ran IT operations for about a billion-dollar healthcare firm. I've done actually a lot of work in both financial services and in CPG. And I used to say that we were both physically and metaphorically in the basement. And to a certain extent, it's the, the nature of technology that the only time people should really notice it is when it doesn't work, right? The better you do your job, the more likely it is that your counterparts and the rest of the organizational leadership team do not understand the complexity and the challenges that you're dealing with. We have this idea of technical debt, right? Those decisions we make, the, the investments we make end up building up these layers of technology that as an IT manager, as Sarah, I'm sure what is sort of sitting in the back of Sarah's mind is the fact that I can't just do this simple pivot because I've got all of these other pieces that I have to deal with. I totally get it. And I was blessed that I worked in an organization where we were changing so fast. It is always scary and always a challenge that low code actually provides an opportunity and a, and a pathway out of that conundrum because it allows you to sort of marry these two together. You get a lot of the benefits of a COTS type app where you have a robust data architecture, but you have the flexibility that you need that you would typically only get through quote unquote custom development, which is the greatest risk of all financially and otherwise. If Sarah was sitting here right now, what do we tell her? Don't be afraid, right? Because your fear, her fears are, are rational. They're based in history. For Charles, remaining in the status quo is more dangerous for a company like Flavify than staying agile. Not to underestimate the risks of the status quo, which I would argue are higher and greater and more immediate than any risk of moving forward and progressing on this journey. One of the advantages of low code is it's this continuous exploration, experimentation process. This is taking steps and then quickly iterating and quickly learning along that process. There we go, Sarah. One last push. Okay, so ultimately Sarah needs to shift her mindset. Yes, because of course she's not wrong. Low code is going to cost money. What she needs to do is change the way she thinks about low code. It's an investment. And with this investment, she can keep her company running and competitive. It's like how the Thanksgiving turkey and all the trimmings are an expense if you're just looking at your wallet. But if you're thinking about the whole experience of having your family over and keeping everybody happy and fed, then the Thanksgiving turkey is an important investment, right? Yes. And if you were planning to data capture your family members. <laughs> oh, I always ask for feedback on my holiday dinners. Hey, Michael, before we go, does Flavify do turkey? I think they may do. Time to call Sarah. While Ginny puts in her order, thanks so much again for joining us today. If you want to learn more about low code or starting to build on Mendex, visit Mendex.com. 
Remember, we're busting one myth a week, so don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts.